Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now here is guest speaker, Jim Mitchell. Good morning. Very good. Nice response there. Well, as Art told you, I want to tell you a story about a guy named Gideon. Before we get there, I just want to set a little bit of groundwork on this. Um, He's in the land of Israel, and Israel has messed up again. It's kind of their history. They mess up a lot. And in this case, they've uh, just pretty much turned away from God. And so God has turned them over to the Midianites. Now, over the years, they've had a lot of ites take over for them, and this time it happens to be the Midianites. And they have come in, and they have just literally ravaged the land. They've gone through. They've destroyed their crops. They've taken all of their livestock. They've left them with virtually nothing. Many of them have fled into the mountains and the hills. They're living in caves. They've built little forts up there. Some are still living down below, but there really is almost no food for these folks. They are just scavenging everything that they can possibly get. They're trying to hide whatever livestock they can come up with. Whatever they can grow, they're growing it in little small areas and trying to protect that and hide that from the Midianites. And so that's where we kind of pick up our story today with Gideon. Gideon is actually down in a hole, which is a wine press, it says in the Bible as you look through the story there. But their wine presses then were a little bit different than what you see when you drive up to Napa and you see the guy up there who's trying to turn the big crank, you know, inside the giant press. Nothing like that at all. This one is simply a hole in the ground that's got some little grooves that go out underneath where when they squish the grapes, it'll uh, go off into some buckets there. And he's down there hiding, threshing some wheat so the Midianites will not see him and come and take his food from him, which is what happens to them all the time under this oppression of the Midianites. Well, while Gideon is doing this, somebody comes and sits down under a tree right by him there and begins to talk to him and says uh, simply to him something like this, uh, God is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon looks at him like, you can't be talking to me because he does not view himself that way at all. Here he is hiding in a hole, hoping that somebody won't find him just so he can make some bread. So he's not feeling so mighty at that point. He doesn't consider himself a warrior, and he's wondering why in the world God would come and say he's with him. Now, apparently this guy didn't look like a Midianite. Apparently Midianites were obvious because he didn't get afraid or upset. He's hiding, but this person doesn't freak him out or scare him, even though he doesn't know who he is. And apparently he begins to realize this is an angel of God. I don't know whether or not you know he was big and handsome or had wings or glue, you know, glowing about him or whatever, but somehow he knew that this was an angel. But immediately, Gideon starts in on him and says, yeah, if God is with us, where is he now? He hasn't been with us for the last seven years. We got the Midianites came in and wiped us out. God doesn't seem to be with us. Our parents and our grandparents, God took care of them. He took them out of Egypt and brought them here and helped them with the victories and all that. And now God has turned against us and left us at the hands of the Midianites. Doesn't feel to me like God is with me. Isn't that the way it is? Oftentimes when things start going wrong for us, we start blaming God. Things can happen around us all over the place to somebody else, and we're just like, oh, that's a shame. Oh, that's too bad. Well, we live in a broken world. Ah, oh, they brought that on themselves. Sure glad it didn't happen to me. But when something suddenly happens to us, when it's my child that gets cancer, when it's my family member that dies at the hands of a drunk driver, suddenly it's like, where is God? I thought God was supposed to protect me. I thought God was supposed to take care of us. I've been serving God. I've been going to church. I've been paying tithe. I've been whatever it happens to be. And we start blaming God for whatever's happening to us. That's what's going on here with Gideon. He's saying, where is this God? No, by the way, what do you mean mighty warrior? I mean, I'm from the weakest tribe in all of Israel, and I'm one of the weakest members of the tribe. I'm not any mighty warrior. What do you mean by this? And the Scripture tells us at this point, it doesn't tell us, but it just kind of intimates here, that it suddenly switches from an angel of the Lord to God himself speaking to him and says, I want you to go out and win back Israel from the Midianites. 
And all of a sudden his demeanor kind of changed and he says, okay, if, if, if this is true, I, I want to bring you a gift. Will you wait here while I go get a gift for you? And he says, yes. And so off he goes back to his place, wherever that happens to be. We don't know if he's hiding in the hills or if he's down below. It would indicate that uh, his family seems to have a little bit of wealth and we'll see that later on in the story here. So he goes back and it says he prepares a baby goat, which means he probably has to kill the goat, skin it and do the whole thing there, get it cooked up. And he prepares a broth and it says it makes a whole bunch of bread. And now remember, they're hurting for food. For seven years, they've gone without a whole lot of food in their land there, and their livestock has been taken from them, their crops have been destroyed, and he's you know, down in this hole threshing wheat trying to hide just to get a little bit of wheat here for the bread. So this is a big deal for him to bring this back out to him. So probably what was a couple of different hours, he comes back out, and there's the angel Lord waiting for him, and he, it says he brings it in a basket, he's got the meat and the bread, and then he's got the broth, and he instructs him, I want you to take and put it on this rock over here, and pour the broth all over the bread and the meat. And he does that, and he steps back, and it says the angel takes a stick, and he touches it, and fire comes up out of the rock and completely consumes all the food. At this point, you're supposed to go, whoa. (laughs) Did you hear what I said? He touched the rock, and the fire came out of the rock and consumed the food. I didn't intend for you to do it again, but that was good. Um, <laughs> when you read the Bible, you've got to read what actually is happening, not just the words. Have you ever seen fire come out of a rock? Have you ever seen fire completely consume the food? Now, I've burned a few things on the barbecue before, but never has it completely consumed it. I've never seen it get that hot where it just completely, almost immediately destroyed what was there. This is an intense heat. Now, today you can find some of that intense heat in some place like a, you know, a smelting factory or you know, inside of a lab or something like that, but we don't see intense fire like that very often. And this angel has just simply taken a stick and touched it, and this sacrifice that Gideon brought has just been consumed right in front of him. And Gideon's whole attitude is suddenly like, okay, I think maybe this is serious at this point. And so it says he built an altar right there, and he called it God's peace, and left there convinced that God had a plan for him and wanted him to do something. Now, it says a little bit later, we don't know if it was that night or another night, God came to him and said to him, I want you to go to your father's backyard and I want you to tear down and break down the altar to Baal that your father has and I want you to tear down the Asherah pole, which is the Asherah of fertility pole, and I want you to take his seven-year-old bull, which apparently seven-year-old was a good one because it was one of his best bulls, I guess, and I want you to take him up into the uh, hills create an altar there, and I want you to sacrifice that bull using the wood from the Asherah pole that you cut down. Very specific about what he wants to do here. He tells him, break down the altar, cut down the pole, build an altar, sacrifice the bull using the wood. Very specific. Now, Gideon decides he's going to do this because he's seen the rock and the fire and the consuming and all that kind of stuff, but he's afraid to do it in the daylight, so he decides he's going to go out at night, and he recruits 10 other people to help him. And these 11 people sneak out in the middle of the night, and I can kind of, have you ever done this where you're out like teeping a house or something like that in the middle of the night, you know, and you're like the, doing this, and you're like, shh, and you know, they're doing the whole sneaking around bit, you know, and I picture them, because I'm from suburban America, I picture them, you know, opening the gate, and it goes, open it slowly, or they're climbing the fence or something, and, and they get in the back, and they're like, you know, now what do we do? They've got to tear this thing down. Probably the altar was nothing more than a bunch of rocks stacked up, so that probably wouldn't have been too hard unless someone were really big where a couple of them had to get together. And, of course, you know, if they're, 
I don't know if he got some doofuses or some real good guys, but if they were doofuses, you know, somebody would drop it on their foot. <laughs> Can't scream. I can just picture this whole thing going on here. And they're trying to be really quiet. And then they got to take the pole down. Now, I don't know how big the pole was. I tried to find out. It looked like most of them are about the size or height of a man, maybe a little bit taller. Uh, but it was big enough um, that people knew it was there. They could see this thing. So they get that down somehow, and then they've got to get up into the hill, and they've got to sacrifice the bull. Now, I've been around some cows before, and I've been around a few bulls, and they're not the kind of thing that you just easily move. I don't know if they killed the bull right there, and then you know the 10 of them had to cut it up and haul the meat up there, or if they tried to get the bull up there. But at any rate, I could imagine these guys out there with, you know, this is a seven-year-old bull. This thing's been around for a while. He understands he's the king of the herd kind of deal. And so these guys are coming up to him, and, and they don't have the kind of stuff that we have nowadays where, you, you know, they can just go up and pop them in the head and they fall down. They had to find a different way to kill this bull in order to sacrifice it. And they're trying to do this in the middle of the night, and they're trying to be quiet, and they don't want anybody to know what's going on. They don't want to get caught at this. So, I, again, I don't know if they ran the bull up there and then killed him, or they killed him here and had to haul the carcass up. Not an easy deal. So they're carrying all the wood, and they're carrying the bowl or whatever, and they've got to build this altar, and then they've got to sacrifice the whole thing. They've got this big fire, and they're trying you know, to get it far enough away so people aren't seeing it if they wake up in the middle of the night. Get it all done, and then get back in bed so nobody knows that they were up. The next morning, people wake up around here, and they realize that the Asherah pole is down, and they come over and they look, and the altar's been destroyed, and they start asking, who would do this? Who would create such a problem? And, and they're, they're all asking and, and asking around to each other, and finally... Somehow it comes back to they figured out it was Gideon. Now, probably, you know, you get 10 guys together doing this. One of those guys had to brag. Oh, you can't believe what we did last night. Don't tell anybody, you know. But somehow, so now through the whole process here, they found out it's Gideon. So they come to Gideon's father and they say to him, You need to send your son out. We need to put him to death because he's destroyed the altar of Baal and the Asherah pole. He deserves to die. And his father comes out and defends him and says, You know what? If Baal is as great as we think he is, let him take care of it. Let him fight his own fights. Let him kill whoever it was that did this, if in fact Baal is Baal. And apparently he gave a very stirring message because they went for it. And they gave up on asking for Gideon, which is kind of a cool thing there. So, now feeling really empowered. First he saw the rock and the flame and all that. He's gone out and he's destroyed this thing and his father has defended him in this whole process here. He now starts to get the word out that they are going to take on the Midianites, and he spreads the word throughout the land, and an army starts to gather. Now, again, you've got to keep in mind here, it's not like you know, they called each other up on their cell phones and you know, let each other know what was going on and texted each other and, and email and all that kind of stuff. It has to go up from person to person to person, and there are no cars. You know, they don't even have camels. You know, the, the, the conquering army had camels. If you read that first part of... Uh, Judges 6 there, it says that they had so many camels you couldn't number them. Like, that was really impressive. That would be kind of their version of tanks and jets and ships and all that kind of stuff. You'd have a lot of camels. So they have nothing here. So they're having to get out there and walk and tell these people, and now they're starting to filter back. So this is actually going to take a little while. This doesn't happen in just a day or two. But an army starts filtering in through this process. But in the middle of that, Gideon starts getting cold feet again. He starts wondering whether or not this is going to really happen. In the meantime, the Midianite army has invited the Amalekites to join them and the termites and all the other ites that are out there. And they're gathering out in the valley of Jezreel and there's somewhere about 120 to 180,000 of them. Now, again, when you hear something like that, you've got to picture that. Here's this massive camp with everything that goes with that. 
They have to provide meals for them. They have to provide water for them. There's no company to haul in the porta potties. You know, they got, I mean, this is a big deal when you've got this many people out there camping in this valley, and they seem to be aware of something's going on with the Israelites. And so they're amassing their army at the same time. So he's getting cold feet. So he, sa- he goes to God one day and he says, uh, God, just, I want you to just show me that this is really going to happen. And he says, I'm going to take this fleece and I'm going to put this out on the ground tonight. And what I'd like you to do, God, is uh, if you would, when, when the dew falls tonight, if you would, just have it all fall on the fleece here and have the ground dry all around it. Then I'll know that you know, you're really serious about this. You really want me to do this. And so he gets up the next morning and he goes out and he picks up that fleece and he takes it and he wrings it out. It's just soaking wet and the ground's dry. And it says he wrings out enough to fill a whole bowl of water. Pretty impressive, huh? Except Gideon comes back to God and he says, now I don't want you to get upset. Don't get mad with me, but could we try this one more time? (laughs) Only this time let's reverse it and let's have the fleece be dry and the ground be wet. Could we do that? Now I'm thinking God's got to be going, oh, what's it going to take with this guy? You know, it's... So God agrees to it. And so he gets up the next morning and he comes out and the fleece is dry and the ground all around it is completely wet. Now we can look at this and say, this guy's an adult. I mean, God has shown him a couple of different times that he's with him, that he's going to take care of him. Why doesn't he get it? But what would it take to convince you? If God were to come to you and say, I want you to do something that is way out of your league. Now he doesn't consider himself a warrior. And yet God is asking him to lead an army. This is way out of his normal realm of thinking. And so he's testing God. What would it take to convince you that God really wanted to do something? I want to show you a little video clip. And in this uh, video, uh, just a little bit of a setup here, the the main character uh, has found the number 614 everywhere in his life all of a sudden. It just keeps showing up all over the place. Even his alarm clock gets stuck on 614. And finally, it, it dawns on him uh, with something that happens that maybe it's a biblical reference, and he goes to uh, Genesis 6:14, and there it is. I want you to build an ark. And God shows up to him and delivers wood unto his driveway and says, I want you to build an ark. He has this little conversation with God, and he says, you know, you got the wrong guy. I don't, he doesn't believe that it's God. And he's going off. He's a brand-new congressman, and he's going to his office in Washington, D.C., and that's where we pick up the story right here. Get off, Evan. It's over. That case is gone. I am successful. I'm powerful. I'm handsome. I'm happy. Successful, powerful, handsome. Evan! Oh! Get it out, son. It's the beginning of wisdom. How did you get in here? Time! Call the cops. Oh, no, no need. Look, look. There's one right there. Right there. Officer! 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 Carjacker! Carjacker in the car! Carjacker in the car! Oh! 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 Careful pulling out. Pedestrian in the crosswalk. Oh. 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 No. 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 Just a weird ride in. Okay, well, thanks for clarifying. 
Here's your mail and your schedule. Oh, and they finally fixed the phones. My new extension is 614. 614. Yeah, 614. Right. You want me to write that down? I'd rather you didn't. Good morning. Oh. Hey, Long came through with that seat on the House Resource Committee. You stuck in your thumb and pulled out a plum, my friend. Also, the new congressional plates just came in. Jean plates now. And Alex at the Buffalo office had her baby. Boy or girl? A little boy, and here he is. Just as cute as a button. Not bad for such an ugly woman. Weighed in at 6 pounds, 14 ounces. How'd you know that? Lucky guess. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hot off the press. It's a joke. Here are your plates, sir. Those are rock star plates, man. You can park anywhere. You can't be sitting in a chair. You've got a committee meeting in five minutes. Come on, BMIC, big man in Congress. Evan Baxter, the shark on the moon. What would it take to convince you? God has given Gideon all these different signs here. Finally, Gideon, at this point, after doing the whole thing with the fleece, he's re-empowered again. He's ready to go. The armies have been gathering, and he's got as many as 32,000 men now together, which, of course, is not very much when you consider that there's at least 120,000 down in the Valley of Jezreel nearby there. And then God really freaks him out. He comes to him and says, you know what? You got too many guys. We need to trim this down a little bit because if I let you guys go out and win right now, you're going to think you did it on your own because there's so many. So he says, we need to get rid of some of them. So I want you to go to him and I want you to say, anybody that's afraid, anybody that's fearful, you just go on home. You don't, no judgments. You know, don't worry. We, we understand you got families. Blah, you know, I don't know whatever he said there. But he goes out and he tells him, you know, go ahead. 22,000 of them leave. He's down to 10,000. And I'm sure Gideon's going, well, we could win with 10, I guess. You know, just feeling a little intimidated at this point. God comes to him and says, you know what, that's still too many. You guys would still take credit if I let you go with this. He says, I got another plan. We're going to trim it down a little bit more. Here's what I want you to do. Take them down to the river. We're going to watch how they drink. And he says, wait, they all bend down and they go like this. And if they put their face in the water, we're going to take them out. But if they reach down and they cup the water so they can look around and they can see people and protect themselves, those are the ones we're going to take. So they take them all down there, they tell them all to get a drink, and at the end of the whole thing, there's only 300 of them that fit the criteria. So now he's whittled down from 32,000 to 10,000 to 300, and God says, this I can work with. So he tells Gideon, he says, this is a group that you're going to take out there, and you're going to defeat the Midianites with 300 against their 120,000. Let's go, Israelites. Yeah. Gideon again is getting a little bit squishy through this whole thing, and God says, okay, I'll tell you what. You sneak down tonight to the edge of the Midianite camp, just right where they've got the lookouts and everything, and I want you to just listen in for a while. And so he takes his armor bearer with him. There's two of them, and they sneak down in the middle of the night through the bushes and the trees and all that, and they get up where they've got the, the guys on the edge. They're doing the lookout, and it's right there at, uh, at the time where they're probably changing the guard because this other guy comes up, and this one guy goes, oh, man, I've got to tell you, I had the weirdest dream last night. I dreamed that a barley loaf came flying out of the sky, landed right in the middle of camp, and destroyed a tent. 
And the other guy goes, oh, that's got to be Gideon. God is going to be with Gideon and he's going to destroy all of us. Now, how he got that out of the barley loaf, I don't I, God had to put those words in his mouth because that's not the first thing you're going to think of there. But Gideon was totally empowered through this. Right there, he prayed, he thanked God, he went back up and he woke up his 300 guys and he said, you know what? We're going to take them and we're going to do it tonight and we're going to beat these guys. God is going to be with us. And so he begins to hand out their weapons, which is a clay pot, a torch, and a trumpet. It's all 300 of them. And he says, we're going to spread out. We've got a company of 100 over there and a company of 100 there and a company of 100 here. And he says, now you guys watch. When I break my pot and you can see the torch and I blow the trumpet, everybody's to do it at the same time. Okay. This is not how they normally fight a war, okay? They're, but they're trusting Gideon. They believe that God is... Gideon's telling them these stories, no doubt, about what's happening here. So they believe him. So they get spread out. And again, this is not just something... We're talking... They're trying to surround over 100,000 people. So it takes them a little while to get their company spread out a little bit over the hills. So it looks like there's a bunch of them. But they finally get them all there. And it says at the last watch of the night or the middle watch where they're actually switching people in the middle of the night here. He does it. He breaks the pot, holds the torch up, blows the trumpet, and they all start doing it. And it just totally freaks out the Midianites. They get all discombobulated. They wake up. They don't know where... You know that feeling when you wake up and you don't know where you are kind of thing? And they're, they're like that. And they, they realize they're being attacked because they can hear the trumpets blowing, which would, you would normally blow in the beginning of an attack. They look up and they see the torches up in the hills and think, oh my God, there's thousands of them. And so they start drawing their swords and they start just swinging at anything and they start killing each other. And it's not too long before almost all the Midianites there are either dead or they're running off into the hills. And Gideon and his men are seeing this whole thing. They run down now with their swords and they finish off whatever guys are left. And as the story goes on, over the next couple of months, the rest of Israel gathered around him and pretty soon they tracked down the top generals. They beheaded them. They held their heads up for everybody to see to encourage them and they eventually drove all the Midianites out after seven years. Isn't that a great story? Yeah. It's so easy for us to just read a story like that and just go, Cool. But there's so much in there. I mean, when you think about all that went on there with him testing God and God hanging in there with the testing, I mean, God could have easily said, you know, let me find somebody else that's not going to go through all this. Let me find somebody with a little more faith than what you've got. But God hung in there with him. God understood that he was struggling with this thing because it just did not fit his little pea brain that we have. He just couldn't grasp how God could do this. Now, he came up with this whole idea of making this wet and the ground dry, I mean, that's pretty creative of him. I don't think I would have thought of that one because that just doesn't fit the science that I know. And so he said, I want you to suspend the laws of science and come up with this, and Gideon did it, and then had the guts to ask him to do it again in a different way, which is kind of cool. But what happens to a lot of us is we just shrink our God down. You ever heard the term putting God in a box? That's oftentimes what we do. We make God really small so that just occasionally I can access God when I want him and when I need him. God hasn't called us to do that. God is a big God. Now, if you look in your notes, we're going to hit these rather quickly because I mostly wanted you to get the story here today and understand that story. But first of all, when we put God in a box, what happens is we begin to worship without awe. This morning, as you were singing those songs, those songs were designed to really draw you to God. They are about worship. They're about the awesomeness of God. They're about our faith. They're about hope. But we forget how awesome God is at times. And it takes some weird things sometimes to, to remind us. How many of you have seen lots of fireworks shows in your life? Probably 40 or more, those of you that have been around for a while. Do you still go, ooh, when you see those things? Those are man-made. God can do so much better. I was near Mount St. Helens when it went off. Talk about a big ooh, you know? That was a massive ooh right there. 
And those kinds of things are happening all the time. God has created this wonderful, incredible stuff around us. And we've got earthquakes, we've got tornadoes, we've got hurricanes, but we have sunsets and sunrises and beautiful snow. There's all kinds of things around us that ought to make us ooh and ah on a regular basis. I was on a plane recently. I do a lot of flying in my job. And you just kind of get used to flying. You know, you forget that you're in a tube going through the air, you know. And we were at that point where we were coming around and we're getting onto the runway and ready to go, you know, when they really fire up the engines and get going. And the, and the uh, flight attendant comes back on and says, folks, you might want to tighten up your seatbelts because we're going to go so fast, we're going to fly. <laughs> Suddenly like, oh, my gosh, we're going to fly. I'd forgotten about that. We're going to go so fast, that thing's just going to take off. I'd gotten so used to being on these planes and just accepting it, and yet it's a miracle. We're defeating gravity for that period of time. And we're going 600 miles an hour at 38,000 feet. Wow. We forget the awe of God. The second thing that happens when we put God in a box is we start to pray without faith. We forget what God has done. We forget all the stories. We forget what He's done in our own lives. I had a friend one time, or actually I shouldn't say friend, but I knew this guy. He was at a church in uh, Los Gatos, California, and there was a big earthquake in Honduras, and he decided that he needed to go down there, that God was calling him to help these people in Honduras. And so he came to his church that Sunday morning. He wasn't the senior pastor, but he said, I need to make an announcement. So he stood up there and he announced to the church, God is providing us with a plane I want you to bring back tonight. Everything you can think of. We need medical supplies. We need clothing. We need food. We're going to fly it all down to Honduras. He had no plane. But he told everybody we're going to have a plane. So he got on the phone on a Sunday afternoon. Somehow at the Pentagon, he got a hold of the head of the Air Force. Told him his thing. The guy said, I'd love to help you, but it'll take me a couple of days. He said, that's not good enough. Hung up. He got on the phone. Ronald Reagan was uh, governor at that time. He somehow got through and personally spoke to Ronald Reagan. Told him what he wanted to do. Ronald Reagan said, that is a great idea. I'd love to help you. It's going to take me a couple days to get a plane. He said, it's not good enough. Got back to church that night. Everybody's, this was a church of about 4,000 at that point. They're bringing in a ton of stuff. They've got it all gathered around the church. In fact, he had them bring it up front so everybody could see it. They prayed over it. He still had no plane. He didn't tell them that. He just said, God's providing a plane. Later that night, somebody told him about a plane at the San Jose airport that might work. So he went out there with a high school kid because he was a youth pastor. And they jumped the fence which they weren't supposed to do. They went out there and they started walking around the wings of this plane with flashlights looking in the windows and said, this plane will do. So he got the tail numbers and they didn't have internet or any of that kind of stuff. Then he somehow tracked down who owned the plane. It was a dentist or a doctor or something like that in San Jose. He called this guy up at home. By this time, it's about two or three in the morning and says, God has called you to fly us to Honduras to help the victims down there. And the guy hung up on him. He called him back up and said, no, you don't understand. God is calling you, not me. You need to fly us to Honduras. You need to meet us down at the airport. We'll bring all the stuff. Well, the short end of the story is they got the guy to do it. They flew down to Honduras. They provided all this. The guy accepted Christ while he was there. He ended up being an elder in that church eventually. Now, that's faith, isn't it? Here's the trick. If you're praying with a backup plan, that's not very good faith. If you're going to pray for rain, keep the umbrella handy. Oftentimes, we just pray without faith, and it doesn't take much. Just a little bit of faith, the Bible tells us, makes a difference. Here's the last one. When we put God in a box, we suffer without hope. And that's where Gideon was. He just figured the rest of his life he was going to be threshing wheat in holes, trying to hide from these people that were his oppressors. He was upset with what's going on here. And it's, uh, you look at uh, verse 13 there. He says that the Lord is with us. Why has all this happened to us? He just is a hopeless person at this point. God has not called us to a life without hope. He's called us to a life with hope. And you know what hope is. We live on hope. 
We hope for emails. We hope for stuff on our birthday or Christmas. We hope for chances to visit with folks that we love and care about. Some people go out and for $1, they buy a piece of hope at those little convenience stores and they scratch it off, you know, or they check their numbers later. It's a dollar's worth of hope. We live on hope and God has not called us to suffer without hope. He's given us story after story after story in the Bible to help us there. The bottom line is that Gideon was a man of fear at this point, and God is taking him out of his fear and helping him overcome it. I used to ski some, but I finally gave it up because I realized I was going about it the wrong way, and I couldn't get my mind wrapped around the right way. What happened was I was skiing the whole time saying, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall. That's all I could think about was not falling. And I wasn't enjoying the process of skiing. Instead of just enjoying what I was doing and enjoying the mountains and enjoying the snow and all that, I'm just like, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall. Now, so you guys probably didn't notice Rick up here is playing the uh, bass. He's got a separated shoulder. He's got his arm in a sling when he's not playing the bass because just the opposite of me, he does not, he should have a little bit of fear. Um, <laughs> and he was doing, you know, kind of a black diamond run, doing some jumping and, and separated his shoulder there. But God has not called us to a spirit of fear. In fact, it says 366 times in the Bible, fear not. That's one for every day of the year, including the leap year. God does not want us to be people of fear. So what signs has God offered you? You don't have the fleece, probably. You probably never did that one with God. You probably don't have the guts to try and do that one with God, right? I know I don't. What signs has God offered you? Well, here's one right here. All the stories wrapped up in here. This is the record of what has gone on in the past. Lots of people saw. When Jesus died, hundreds saw When Jesus rose again from the dead, hundreds saw him after he came back from the dead, and it's all recorded in here. All we have to do is listen to their account and to believe them. God has given you so many signs, the sign of the cross. We see the cross everywhere in our our world. Even people who don't even believe in Jesus have the cross around them. The signs of the cross are everywhere. And that sign is a sign that no longer do we have to take the seven-year-old bull and build an altar and sacrifice it. The last sacrifice has been made. It's done. Isn't that cool? That's a sign for us to believe God. Now, I know a lot of you would like God to sit in your back seat and you know, to be in two places at once and all those kinds of But we already know from Gideon and from lots of other things, that's typically not enough. Even people who saw that stuff, saw the stuff consumed by fire and saw the man on the ground and the Red Sea opened up and all those kinds of things, it still is hard to believe. But we only need a little bit there. Perhaps you came in here today feeling a little bit fearful a little bit hopeless. Hopefully when you leave here today, after some time of worshiping, there'll be a greater sense of awe. I don't know where you are today, but wherever it is, let's just let go of that fear today. Let's get God out of the box. Let's open him up and allow him to be God. Will you pray with me as the worship team comes back up? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California. Oh,